This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Clap, 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 clap your hands and stomp your feet. You're listening. You're listening to the Clap Your Hands Podcast. Hosted by Elliot Shore Parks and Kyle Newbeck. Here they come. What's up, everybody? This is the Clap Your Hands podcast brought to you by Odyssey Sports and Sports Radio 94 WIP. I am Elliot Short Parks coming off of two very easy Sixers wins. And Kyle, I'm sure that those two wins against really what's an all-time Pistons team have completely changed your view of, uh, of the Sixers. Yeah, you know, I, I thought the process Sixers were the worst team I'd ever <laughs> seen in person until I saw that version of the Pistons on Tuesday yeah. night. You know, I we do have to say they're missing Cade Cunningham and they were missing Bojan Bogdanovich, Isaiah Stewart, Jalen Duran. So they're injured on top of being bad, but my God, I mean, they had possessions where Sadiq Bay is basically yeah. the backup center trying to guard Joel Embiid. And, you know, that, that went about as well as you would have expected. So definitely want to get into those two games, how the team's playing overall, um, the trade deadline is less than a month away. Want to kind of discuss what they should do. Not some names, but just whether this recent stretch has changed our opinion on what they should look for. Uh, also want to talk about this Sixers team just compared to other great Sixers teams we've seen. But before we started the pod, right when you hopped on to, to begin, <laughs> we had some late breaking news that I think, frankly, should lead the pod if, if we're being honest here. Tyrese Maxey signs with New Balance and looks like he might get a signature shoe, potentially. Um, let me say this about this decision by Tyrese Maxey. I'm excited he got a shoe deal. I'm excited he's getting paid for it. I do think it's noteworthy that he's going to be like a signed player, that he's one of those guys that one of the main brands is supporting. But New Balance, man, come on. Like New Balance's shoes for basketball are straight up ugly, if we're being real. I, oh, I'm, man. I, I've gotten it. I can get down with the fact that New Balances have become cool again. I whatever it is, what it is. But his basketball shoes, come on, Tyrese. Like stick with Nike. Reebok's personal shoes aren't that great. Under Armour with Embiid, you could have gone there. New Balance, kind of disappointing. I will say, I'm looking at their website now. These shoes are not half bad. Some of these, oh, wow. like they're. Listen, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I have worn a pair of New Balances in the last, you know, probably 20 years. Right. I've been a uh, a Nike devotee for most of my <laughs> life, partially because I have I have big feet, but I have narrow feet, so mm. Nike shoes tend to hit the sweet spot for me. There you go. Um, well, but, you know we're old when we're talking about picking shoes based off how they feel in the fit. <laughs> listen, man, that's uh, that's how you got to do it. Like it, exactly. if you wear shoes that fit you properly. 
it makes such a huge difference in your everyday life, let alone when you're trying to play sports. So anyway, I to me, I only care that you know Tyrese got a bag. Like good for yes. him. That's uh, and I think like you're seeing this a lot more that it used to just be like it Nike essentially dominated or it still dominates to the to the most part uh the basketball market because yeah. that's the them and Jordan which is a subsidiary of Nike are just like what people grew up wearing or grew up seeing guys wear and so the money for guys is in signing with the other companies like mm-hmm. your Nike knows because they have the x percent of the market share that they don't have to give guys like probably what they're worth, quote unquote. So places like New Balance or Reebok or Puma has been a, another company that started, you know, picking up in basketball the last few years. They'll give these guys bigger contracts to to come yeah. over there and be more of a face of the program. So I'm never going to hate on uh, a player making sure they get as much money as possible. As long as those shoes actually keep them healthy. That's like the only <laughs> thing that really matters. If you're wearing some busted ass, like what was the Evan Turner signed with like a, a Chinese? Yeah, shoe like I forget what it was called. But Jimmy, was it Jimmy Butler that was with them too? No, maybe. I I, there was um, someone else that was with him. Dame Lillard made, or no, it was Clay Thompson. There you go. Um, yeah. So as long as New Balance doesn't have any kind of... Uh, health-related concerns for Mr. Maxi. That's all that really matters. He's getting the bag, and uh, we move onward. He is a good young player to uh, to sign, I think, to a shoe deal in terms of just up and coming. You know, like, get him now before he super pops off. The last basketball shoe take I have for you, I'm curious for your opinion on this. I feel like growing up, signature shoes were way better than they used to be. And that could just be because I'm older now and I'm not as into it. But you think about Iverson shoes, like I used to have every pair, every color of those, T-Mac shoes, Vince Carter shoes, Kobe shoes were objectively ugly a lot of times, but they were- at least Oh, those ugly. like boat shoes yeah, that you had exactly. with Adidas? Yeah. James Harden's uh, shoe now looks like those old Kobe's if you yeah. see James Harden's shoe. His, James Harden's shoes now look like he just took a bunch of different types of cloth and just pitched, like kind of stitched them together and made a shoe. But like- I just think that all shoes kind of look the same now from Nike. Like all the signature Nike shoes kind of look the same. Whereas I felt back in the day when like we were growing up and we're roughly the same age, signature shoes were a way bigger deal than they used to be. Well, here's the other thing too. I think because they've gone away from all basketball shoes being high tops, a lot of basketball shoes look like, you know, a normal sneaker, right? Like, Kobe yeah. was the one who really started this trend. He went to the, uh, they almost look like running shoes, but I've worn like Kobe's indoor before. Soccer or something. Yeah, I've worn Kobe's before and they definitely keep your ankle in place despite the fact that you're not actually, they're just a mm-hmm. snugger type of shoe. And I think that's been the problem though, is like a lot of these guys have gone to lower top shoes. Like Kyrie is hit shoes a lot more like a Kobe. Although I don't think he's going to have a deal anymore after no. all the uh, anti-Semitism and all the other. Yeah. Um, I think Paul George's shoe trended in that direction. He's not one of their like main, main guys, but he's got a, a well-selling shoe for Nike. So, yeah, I, I tend to agree that uh, that's sort of the problem is that they all look the same. And you actually named the two that I wore growing up. I wore basically only uh questions and the t-max yes. shoes i had a couple pairs of uh t-max, T-Max shoes were good. 
Yeah, T-Max were good. I'm trying to think who else. I feel like Kevin Garnett had a run there with some shoes. But yeah, I mean, again, I feel like the more we do this pod, the more we discover. I'm definitely old. And, uh, you know, it seems with this, we're, we're on the same page. But to get back to the actual team, and it will be interesting to see when Tyrese starts to get his own shoe and whether it's good. And we'll certainly do an emergency pod on that when uh, <laughs> when, that, when that drops. Maybe but, we can get New Balance to send us each a pair of shoes and we'll see if they can soften your, uh, well, your cold heart over there. <laughs> I'll tell you this. If they send me a pair, I'll probably put them right there on the shelf and be up here like, these are the best sneakers I've ever seen, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Get them in all the colors. So yeah, if, if New Balance is listening, I'm certainly up for sale. I can tell you that much. Um, All right. So the game last night. I think that the correct take is probably the Pistons are hot garbage, but I, I do think um, to me as, as covering an Eagles team that for about two years, the topic has been whether or not they play good competition. I think there's a difference between beating up on bad competition because they're bad and a really good team playing well, that happens to be playing a bad team. And I think the Sixers team right now to me is playing at an elite level. Like I know that the Pistons are not good, but everything is clicking for the sister, uh, the Sixers. Harden is playing at a really high level and B just casually drops 30 and looks like he's barely even trying. Maxi is getting back into the swing of things. Um, so I think everything is clicking right for the Sixers. And I thought these last two games, but especially last night, I mean, they casually put up 146 points. Like it was nothing. Even Jaden Springer w- w- was playing. I think what you're seeing right now with the Sixers is much more a result of the team playing at a high level than just beating up on a bad Pistons team. So I want to push back on it like it was nothing because as someone who had to sit through the fourth quarter of that game in person <laughs> and watch about a thousand fouls get committed by both yeah. teams, that was one of the most excruciating fourth quarters in a blowout that I've ever sat through. Yeah, just it took a long time. Absolutely miserable stuff. I will say... I like this circles back to something we talked about during their win streak during that big homestand. You don't have to feel any shame for beating up on bad teams, right? Like this is what you're supposed to do to get to 50 plus wins on the season. You're going to have to beat a lot of bad teams. Like there are only so many real contenders in the league. And when you get a team like the Pistons, ideal outcome is your best players play well for about two quarters you sit them toward the end of the third, start of the fourth, and you know you all go home with a comfortable win, minutes for your developmental guys, and no real wear and tear on the best guys. Mission accomplished on every front in that game, right? Like yeah. Joel didn't even play on Sunday, and they shot like crap on Sunday on the road in a game that like 15 people watched. I was gonna say I'll, I'll hands in that. up. Yeah, I did not. Um, and they still, like, the game was never close. It never really got closer than, I want to say, like, 10 or 12 in the second mm-hmm. half. And then this the Tuesday night's game at home was an even bigger joke. Like, Joel, they were trying to sub Joel out of that game for several minutes. And the Pistons fouled him on every single possession, so they couldn't get him out. Montrezl Harrell is just, like, heading the clouds at the scorer's table, waiting for his opportunity to check yeah. in. Jane Springer had like extended minutes in the fourth quarter and actually played pretty well. Like that's Mm. how well that game went. And, you know, I, that's a great thing. Like this was a game that you could never with the Sixers in the, I'll say the Ben era. I'm not saying this is his fault, just like when he was here and they didn't take lower or lesser competition seriously most of the time. Mm -hmm. And Joel and James and doc all said after the game last night, like, you know, this was a professional mentality. We knew this was a banged up team, an undermanned team. 
we wanted to come in there and Joel said he wanted to turn it into a three quarter game. And that's exactly mm. what it was. He scores 36 points in 24 minutes. He leaves and they're up by 41 points. I believe <laughs> when he checked out, yeah. like that's great. Those are the sort of, that's like one of the best, like not one of the best wins of the year in the sense that the competition sucks, but one of the best wins of the year in the sense that, that's what you have to do against these teams. Absolutely bury them. And then you spend the fourth quarter waving towels and cheering for Chick-fil-A and you know all kinds of other goofy shit. Well, first of all, I, I think your point about it being one of the best wins of the year, I get what you're saying. And I think there's so much truth behind it because think about how far this team has come since when we started the podcast, right? Our first podcast we did, they lost to the Houston Rockets in double overtime. And we got on the pod that night and talked about a lack of effort, how they looked old, slow, their roster compared to the Rockets just wasn't as young, right? Not as fast. That night, I said I would trade their rock their roster for the Rockets roster. I said the Sixers <laughs> window was closed, right? And I told you it was wrong at the and time. I, yeah, exactly. The, the, the first of many that you'll uh, you'll prove me wrong about with basketball. But no, if you look at where they've come since then to now. Don't overlook the fact that this team just went out and handled business against a bad Pistons team. I think the quote from Embiid while making it a three-quarter game is such a great mentality for this team to have going into games because I think it pushes the urgency right away to come out, try hard, take care of business. And that's the thing with the Sixers team that I think you've really seen over these last few weeks is when they just try, and it sounds simple, but when they just try, they are so much more talented than they were last year. I think they're way more talented than they were two years ago, and they have the ability to come out and look like that if they just give maximum effort. So I think that while it's not a great win because they didn't go into Boston and beat the Celtics, they didn't, you know, beat Milwaukee uh, in Philly or whatever. It was a great win because it showed this team is putting it together and starting to realize what they need to do to be a great team. Yeah. And like to just I know we're really playing up the importance of a midseason Pistons win, but like, welcome to a midweek pod, my guy. <laughs> you see, with it, like, recently with the Eagles, for example, that game against Chicago, you never know when something like Jalen Hurts gets hurt in that game. Yeah. It, the more guys have to play in meaningless games, the more dangerous it is for the team that's actually good. Like, you yeah. want to be able to just put guys on ice and, like, yeah, it's probably not the best if Joel is playing 24 minutes every night because you want him to be, you know, building up toward playoff stamina and all that. But, you know, ultimately, if you can beat teams by 30 plus points or 30 points, whatever it is every night or, you know, even infrequently against all the bad teams, you're saving those, you're saving your legs and saving your energy for the games that are like the true statement, national TV, you know, big matchup type games. And over the course of time, when you know Joel is having to play 38 minutes or 40 minutes, you can sort of wash that out with a few of these games. So I, I think that's important for him. I think another thing I want to bring up, PJ Tucker actually looked like a real NBA player against uh, Pistons. I don't know. I don't know. He had a couple corner threes. He had yeah. more rebounds than I think he's had in a game in a while. And it was after, no surprise, he got a layoff. He had a, a night off on Sunday. So, you know, they're going to have to be a little more aggressive, I think, with getting him nights off and not asking him to be an every night player. And as we've talked about with uh, DeAnthony Melton, he can fill in and be a perfectly fine starter, like a guy who compliments everybody else, do a lot of the things that PJ can do. 
and then you bring PJ back and he actually looks like he can move and he doesn't have like a a coffin sitting next to him yeah. on the floor half of yeah. the time. So if you can get a better version of PJ, you know, that makes a huge difference for this team. What'd you think of the decision to uh to sit Melton? I, I mean not to to not start him, I should say. It was about what I was expecting. I mean, we talked about this a bunch, Elliot. Like, I don't think Doc was gonna pull the yeah, Maxie's the sixth man card. Right. I, I do think Doc said after the game that it's going to be fluid and that Melton, they like him as the sixth man. They like him as a starter, et cetera, et cetera. It sounded like he's leaving the door open to bring Melton back in and play that three-guard lineup potentially. Maybe it depends on the matchup. Yeah, I'm a little more skeptical that he's going to actually do that and you know go to PJ and say, hey, Go take a seat on the bench and you know deal with the consequences of that. Um, honestly, I think Tyrese individually, maybe not the people around him, like certainly his representation and you know his family, friends, whatever, and want to see him start and play as many. <laughs> yeah, want to see him start and play as many minutes as possible. But I think of anyone in that equation, I think Tyrese is probably the most open to just if he thinks it's best for the team and he's still going to play a ton of minutes. I think he would probably embrace it but i just i don't think that's going to happen i think melton probably ends up in this six-man role unless pj's not healthy and then we might run into the you know it's so good with the three guards out there that pj might just never return to the line right so a good sign of how winning cures all is on the surface and like at my heart i am mad that pj is starting over melton i want to see the three guards start i want to see melton start he's better than pj but you have swayed me a little bit. And when you combine the winning that I do think PJ gives you almost nothing off the bench, whereas at least Melton or Maxi's game lends itself a little more to coming in, giving them a spark. You know, they can run, run the floor quick, all those things. PJ basically comes in and, and is nothingness. So I do think that is one argument to, uh, to, to keeping PJ in the starters. But I also, to your point, Doc was really never going to bench PJ. I, I think that, the chances of PJ not starting a playoff game or an important game are, are extremely slim. Yeah. I, we're in full agreement on that one. And I like, again, as we've said a thousand times, PJ against Milwaukee and Boston and teams like that. That's why you signed him period. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't sign him for games against the Pistons or like the thunder tomorrow. or Like those games don't really matter. You can be, experimenting and doing all kinds of stuff. PJ is here to guard Giannis and Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and just like make their lives miserable for four yeah. quarters in a game in April, May or June. Like that's, that's all it comes down to. So a question I had for you is the team is obviously playing much better now. I think they're, I looked this up like 14 and three in their last 17 games um, playing the best they have all year. I think without question, What's the mood like around the team? I know that when they were struggling, you know, you had said Joel particularly wasn't kind of pushing the panic button, but now that they are playing well, I'm curious if you notice a difference in just the mood, what, how they're talking. Does it feel like they're getting their confidence really going? Just what's it like down there with the team? I, I think the vibe has been great almost all season. And if you think about it, since the start of November, they've been, you know, one of the best teams in basketball. Like this stretch goes back, way further than just like the last few weeks or so. Yeah. This has been a team that's been on a roll for quite a while after a, a tough start to the season. You know, some ups and downs with injuries and what have you. But I, these guys, it's a very lively locker room. Like Daniel House Jr. doesn't 
really play much, but he's always one of the the loudest guys in the locker mm-hmm. room. The one night he went on this big rant about why he doesn't mess with five guys, burgers and fries, <laughs> like that, and comparing it to Whataburger and all kinds of other all stuff. Right. There, there have been some uh, debates on music in the locker room. There was a Montrez Harold karaoke session at one point. And wow. And you got he, to witness this? <laughs> he really roasted uh, PJ Tucker. He's like, PJ, not everybody wants to listen to Jay-Z and Nas. Like, <laughs> it's 2002 or something, yeah. like that. something like that. So that was really funny. But as I've mentioned before, there's the little brother, big brother thing with Joel and Tyrese, where Tyrese is just this like bubbly, energetic guy. And Joel is just kind of head in the head in the or towel on his head. He's watching NBA league pass in the corner on ice. Like it's a good mix of guys. You can tell that they at least for now get along with each other. They haven't hit like they've hit adversity in the sense that. You know, they had that tough start and they've had injuries, but I don't think they've hit like a real period of, all right, shit's hitting the fan and it's like a gut check. I don't think that has really happened. And that's when you learn about, you know, how this team is built and the personalities and how they mix. But, you know, by and large, it seemed like this group gets along that they have established a pretty natural pecking order. Like I do think I give a lot of credit to James, who's not, He's certainly not Mr. Rah-Rah, like locker room guy and all that. But in terms of what they're doing on the floor, I think it's really important that when Joel re-enters the lineup after, you know, James is basically the guy, quote unquote, when he's out, James right away goes back into that facilitator. I'm getting the ball to Joel at the free throw line and mostly letting him cook type mode. Like that's really important that James, who, you know, has a better resume than Joel straight up. Like has a, he's mm-hmm. a top 75 player of all time. All that has an MVP has gone deeper in the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. And he is still cognizant of the fact that Joel's our best player and the team is going to run that way. Like he's going to get the ball. He's going to be the center of attention. Like that's not an easy thing to do. We've seen a lot of guys that get to around this stage of their careers who are, you know, at or around James's level, and they never make that adjustment. Like a big reason Allen Iverson retired early is he could never figure out what it means to be a secondary guy or a yeah. guy who comes off the bench or a guy who defers to other people. So I think that is probably an underplayed story for the year that James, you know, I know there was the stuff about maybe he'd go back to Houston if he doesn't like things here and there's the, the weird, le- weird and annoying leaks on that front. But if you're just yeah. judging strictly by how he's handling the basketball side of things, I think he deserves a lot of credit for you know helping to set that hierarchy of guys. And you know if James is willing to take a step back, then that makes it easy for every other guy to say, you know, if this future Hall of Famer, like first ballot guy, is willing to defer to Joel, then I have no business, you know, overstepping or saying, you know. I want more. I want this. I want that. Yeah. And look, James has been awesome recently. Obviously the team goes through Joel, but I also think sometimes you watch and it feels like James is the engine for the team, just in terms of what he does for everybody else. Joel, they just give him the ball basically. And he does his thing. I think when James is really playing well, and he is right now, you can really see what he does for other people on the court. My question based off of that, and it's it, it's it good and interesting to hear the dynamics about them personally. Cause I do think, with Ben and Joel, that probably was never the case in terms of just 
their them getting along. It seems like James and Joel get along personally, like as friends. If I'm correct me if I'm wrong about that, but it does seem like they are there. But I'm curious on the court, how do you think do you think they're getting close to figuring out how to play together? Because that was a big question coming into the year. And even early on in the year, I agree there hasn't been a ton of adversity, but it certainly has not been smooth sailing. I mean, there were certain points where it felt like this thing could have really gone off the rails. But just in terms of on the court, how do you think James and Joel are doing in terms of getting the reps together, feeling comfortable, and really getting things going? I think it's good. I mean, the mm -hmm. pick and roll play was good from minute one last year. Obviously, they didn't have all the wrinkles that come off of that. But I do think James is starting to get more comfortable in the Joel-centric world. Like He's been a more willing catch-and-shoot guy, which that has historically been a huge issue for him to even attempt catch and shoot jumpers. And, you know, to be in that offense where Joel's getting doubled at the elbow and it just swings around the floor. It can't just be James always makes a pass. Like it has to be, I read the floor and if I'm open, I shoot. And I know that sounds like an overly simple thing for a guy who's like a offensive genius on yeah. a lot of levels, but he has never quite been comfortable as that guy. And I do think that there have been, a lot of positive signs there recently. Um, and, you know, I, I think they're starting to develop little wrinkles and, you know, secondary actions that it's not just, all right, James runs the pick and roll, gives the ball to Joel at the elbow, and then he's checked out, right? Like they run some, they might run another handoff or they, they reset the offense and they run something again. Like I, I mm -hmm. do think that they're starting to get into more second and third actions if their initial play or, the initial pick and roll doesn't work or the initial handoff doesn't work. And I think you also see, and I've brought this up on another podcast, you see them communicating a lot on the floor, like between timeouts during free throws, things like that on things they messed up. Like one guy or maybe both guys recognizes that something didn't go the way it was supposed to. And they'll have a quick two man huddle, put their heads together and say, all right, what happened there? Or yeah. you should have been there or I should have been here, whatever it is. And the fact that they're able to have that constant open dialogue is really good. Like, I don't know that they're friends in the sense that Joel is just kind of like a homebody yeah. who keeps to himself. He's not, uh, he's not hanging out with little baby and <laughs> Meek Mill and all these guys. They seem to have but different social lives. I would say. Joel is very much a, a father who likes to spend time with his family and kind of right. keep to himself. And like, I respect that. Um, yeah. But I, 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 I at least think that they have good, a good professional relationship. And, you know, at least as far as I can tell, I can't see any friction now. Now, again, easy for that to be the case when you're 25 and 15 and, you know, 14 and three and your last 17, whatever it is, like right. everyone's going to get along when you win. It's, it's whether that withstands real pressure and adversity. And that's all that stuff that really, you only learn that in the playoffs. Like, and I know that's a really simplistic way to view things, but, that's the only time when you're really tested unless things are going completely off the rails in the regular season. But I, I do think, and I agree now they have been through the playoffs before. So, you know, they've had some adversity there. I think a major difference looking from, <clears throat> from afar, you know, obviously not being as close as you are, is it seems like with Joel, Joel, I agree. Seems like someone that just likes to chill at home, play video games, hang out with his family. You don't see him out, you know, on, all these Instagram videos of him out at like a party or a bar or whatever. So, but I think with him and Ben, the issue was 
Ben's game, he was stubborn in the way that he would not adjust to what the team needed him to do. And so I think it wasn't about like personally they didn't hang out. I think it was Joel was frustrated with Ben for his lack of adjustments. I think Joel and Harden don't need to be best friends in the way that Joel's going out with James at night. But I think James seems way more willing to not be as stubborn. And that makes them closer as friends on a basketball term because James is willing to change his game for Joel, which Ben really never was. Despite him saying how smart he was basketball wise, he was never really willing to do that. I agree. And Joel made that if he wasn't like outwardly calling out Ben. Yeah. He certainly was passive aggressive. Like, you know, I'd space the floor so that we can do different things. And that was a big thing, especially during the Al Horford year. Joel <laughs> talking about his sacrifices and what he's doing right. to help other people. And I agree. Like Ben never did any of that stuff. Whereas again, to bring up the catch and shoot thing, that's a very specific hardened problem that he has tried to adjust around just so he can fit better next to Joel, but also just next to all these other guys in general. Yeah. And so I, I give him credit for that. And, you know, it sounds silly to be like, oh man, I'm really proud of James because <laughs> he's taking open threes, but it it has been a thing that he has lacked the comfort to do historically. Yeah. So it, it's been a nice change of pace. Well, you'll probably never hear anybody else say this, but I'm happy you brought up the Al Horford year because one oh, thing God. I was <laughs> one thing I was thinking about during the game last night was I think this is one of the best Sixers teams I've seen in a really long time. Now, they have to accomplish things in the playoffs, no question about it. And that that still stands there with this team. But when you look at just the roster, how people are playing, how James is playing, Melton, Maxi, the way Embiid is playing, Tobias improvements in his games and all these things. I can't think of a team better than this since really the 01 Sixers. And I went back and I looked at some of the 01 Sixers stats and they were hysterical to look at compared to now. Um, I was saying to James, our producer, before we started the show, I remember growing up and thinking Aaron McKee is like the best three point shooter in the world. Like that guy can shoot and like, blah, blah. <laughs> and, and you go back and look, do you want to guess how many threes he attempted a game? Not many. I would say like two or less. 2.2. And do you want to guess what go. he got? It was like, uh, do you want to guess what, what his three-point shooting percentage was? 36%. Oh. 31%. Oh I, my let, God. let me double check that because now I'm wondering. But here I have it. Da, 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 da. Clap your hands, pod. 016ers. Aaron McKee, 31% on 2.23s a game. Iverson attempted 21 two-point a shot, two-point attempts per game. And only, let me see what he on threes, four threes a game. And he was 32% from there. So there is certainly some context of, while I remember the Sixers team being awesome, it is very much a sign of how different the game was back then, for sure. Like no one on that team could shoot threes. No one was willing to shoot threes. And it was basically just Iverson driving to the basket, which is probably why I have a twisted sense of my favorite style of basketball in terms of guards. But when you look at this Sixers team compared to other Sixers teams we've seen, where do you think they kind of uh, rack up? Like, where would you rank them? Since 01, we're talking about. So well, we can go back to if you want to the 80s, but I don't know if either of us. So want the to problem, and I, I hate the historical comps in general because, like, trying to take. Uh, so, for example, everyone always says this with like Wilt Chamberlain. It's like, right. oh, Wilt put up these insane stats, but he would be. Like I've seen people like he'd be DeAndre Jordan today or whatever it is, which is like, 
if you actually watch even highlights of Wilt, that's clearly <laughs> not true. He could hit like a 15 footer off glass reliably, which oh, yeah. DeAndre Jordan couldn't do that if he had a hundred attempts in a game. <laughs> like that's just not. But like it's so hard to compare, you know, somebody who's playing in an era where guys are like smoking cigarettes at halftime, yeah. beer after games, and like to these guys who have nutritionists and 8,000 trainers they have like team trainers and then their own trainers aside from that like they have such a better understanding of how sleep impacts them they travel on their team charter planes rather than you know buses coach or whatever it is like they're all you you don't think iverson was following sports science is what you're saying you don't think there was a lot of but for example (laughs) like if you dropped alan iverson into the 1960s he would be absolutely ridiculous compared to any of those guys he'd average 80 points a game he'd score a a million points like that (laughs) but that to me doesn't prove anything it's like all right, right how good is this team relative to the rest of the competition during their time like i don't want to i I will say this version of the Sixers would destroy the 0-1 Sixers. And I yeah. don't think that's an exaggeration, but that's just because they would shoot so many more threes and Larry Brown would try to win by like unleashing a three-quarter court press or something <laughs> and you know hoping that Allen Iverson scores a ton of points in transition. Like I went back at, at the start of COVID and I actually rewatched and recapped the 0-1 finals as nice. if they were happening live. This, yeah. Yeah. Um, and one of the takeaways I had was that Matumbo, I feel like got a bad rap for that series because <laughs> Shaq was insane and like, yeah. was just so dominant. Matumbo like legit made him work hard on a lot of these shots. And it's just one of those where like the other guy is just better. Well, and- I always remember this picture of Shaq backing into Matumbo and Matumbo's got this look on his face of just such extreme pain. And I give him credit for, even trying to stand up to what was like maybe the most unstoppable offensive force at that point uh, in the yeah. game. And I, so one of my takes before I watched that series and like revisited that year in general was that I thought the better version of that team was with Theo Ratliff <laughs> in the start of the, because start yeah. of that year, I don't remember what they, they might've been like 40 and 10. Yep. To start the year. I think like they started they were, 11 and 0 or something like that. They, they were absolutely insane. And, Ratliff was a much better fit for that, like run and gun. We're gonna press you, and like they forced a turnover. And Ratliff is like what, like six nine or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And so he runs the floor like he's a a wing essentially, and he's a tra- in the trail spot just dunking on people, or whatever. Right. And so that was always the team that I remembered, and I remembered you know Shaq putting up thirty whatever a game and dominating the finals. But like have, having watched it now. If they had Theo Ratliff against Shaq for those <laughs> finals, he might have scored 45 points a yeah. game. Like that was that was the difference that I thought Matumbo made. I don't know if they make the finals either with Ratliff because that Milwaukee. Well, he team, broke his thumb, didn't he? Wasn't that the reason yeah. they did the trade? Yeah. Yeah. And I I think they probably don't beat Milwaukee, who was really good that year in the conference finals. And there are a lot of Bucks fans who think it was fixed for the Sixers because <laughs> of how the uh, the officiating went. I'm really going off the, the plot. No, I'm, I dude, I'm, 0-1-6ers are my favorite team of all time. So, so it, is, it is crazy to think that Iverson sat out one of those playoff games against Milwaukee. I mean, what an insane, <laughs> just like so many weird games. Yeah. Like the game six that they lost in Milwaukee, 
they're down by like 30 points and they brought it all the way, almost all the way back to like, mm-hmm. and there's really no reason to, you could have just packed it in and said, yeah, no, this game's done. We have game seven at home in Philly, whatever. But they like put the fear of God in Milwaukee and then game seven, they came out and, you know, obviously had a big win at home and went to the finals. Um, but to get back more to the question, right. That team would not be able to score the way you need to, to be able to be yeah this version of the Sixers. Like if we were to say, all right, they're just going to shoot more threes because that's what you do now. And they like mentally make that switch, but they haven't actually changed the roster at all. They're still screwed because they're playing, you know, as you said, Aaron McKee was sixth man of the year at the time, like a good source of offense off the bench, offense and playmaking, I should say, but can't shoot relative to guys playing in the league today and then you're playing you know tyrone hill as your power forward Jordan i don't know that Lynch. he i don't know if tyrone hill took more than this is another one to look up right now he couldn't have taken more than like 15 threes the entire season well i, I actually have their page up i think um there was a few players on the sixes that literally didn't take a single three so let's see tyrone hill here he is tyrone hill attempted 0.03s that year According to his uh, the basketball reference page, so zero at all, not a single one. He it says that he has zero point zero of zero point zero and zero percent from three. So I would assume I can go so to that's that a, so that's your starting power forward most. Right, okay, he took one three all year. My bad, he took one three. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, so you're asking, you'd be asking guys, even if you're saying like they have the mental component of the right. modern game they're just not guys who took threes and are not comfortable with that shot. Like the whole offense was not designed around that. It was that Iverson cut that they had uh, Seth Curry doing the last few years. You get him isolated on one wing and then he attacks one-on-one and you know, those guys kind of fold around him. Like that, that's right. fine. That that worked really well because Iverson was a, a great isolation scorer and the rest of those guys were, you know, workman, defensive type guys. Matumbo, like the best possible version of that, like defensive player of the year level defender at center. But I'm they trying just to they imagine Matumbo getting pulled out to the three point line because Joel is like. <laughs> That's another thing. It's like you're asking guys who they were good defensively at a time where you only really need to guard from, I don't know, let's say 20, 18 feet and in, 15 right. feet and in most of the time. So it was just. Jordan. It's hard to ask them to beat any modern NBA team, any good modern NBA team. Like I still think they're talented enough that they probably beat up on teams like that shitty Pistons team we just watched. Yeah, I but even still, the math, shots. the math problem at some point is like it's too big to overcome. We talked about it with blown leads and things lately. Sometimes teams just hit five threes in a row and close a 15-point gap or whatever, and right. that's just not a thing that they did back then. George Hill took 57 threes. The, or not George Hill, so my bad. George, George Lynch. George Lynch took 57 threes the entire year, and he was their starting small forward, right? I'm not from a Yeah, state. so underrated part of why the they lost 4-1 in the finals is that he was out and hurt and yeah. would have been a good, at least a defensive option against, you know, Kobe and some of these other guys. And so that was, and then on top of that, Aaron McKee real banged up sucked in the finals. Like yeah. snow was a lot of things. Too, right? that, uh, I don't remember if snow was like badly hurt. They were really banged up. I think people, do you remember that Raja bell? Basically oh yeah. 
didn't play a lot of the year. And then he had a big moment in game one of the finals and was like their only real option. He's kind of like Matisse for most now. of that year. Yeah. I feel like Raja Bell that made like his whole career. Like, wasn't he in he the had a long career after that? Yeah, yeah. Like five or six years or something. I remember, and this is obviously another tangent, but when I was in high school, so I went to central high school and I used to take the sub to temple. Cause that's where my parents taught. And so I took the sub one day and um, I get off and there's like a huge crowd and like girls are like crying and I'm like, Oh my God, what's going on? It was literally just Iverson and Tyrone Hill walking down broad, like on Temple's <laughs> campus. And like, I like, it was unbelievable watching the reaction to Iverson just among, I mean, cause you know, we get jaded with it sometimes. Like we see these athletes in person all the time, but Iverson back then, man, like Joel's a star and he is a face of the league. Iverson back then was another level of, of star in the city, I think. So I think this is one of my most controversial takes Uh-oh. basketball-wise. I think there's a better case to put Allen Iverson on a basketball Mount Rushmore than there is for Kobe Bryant. And I'm going to tell you why. All because right. I think Kobe is basically like, this is not to deride him for his career. He had an amazing career, all-time great career. He's basically just a worse Michael Jordan. Like yeah. there, he is not nothing about his game itself was all that unique. Like incredible scorer, incredible two-way player at his peak, won everything there is to win, blah, blah, blah. But like <laughs> blah, blah, mostly blah. <laughs> like has admitted that he just right. copied Jordan's moves. And like I that's not something we should make fun of him for. Like a guy coming as close as he did to replicating Jordan is unbelievable because Jordan's stats still are like video game numbers Mm -hmm. if you actually go back and look at them. But if you talk about like real influence and like Iverson changing paradigms, like the fashion and like the style stuff that he did, like the way that like they changed the dress code and they like instituted a dress code that there's like elements of racism and shit like that Mm -hmm. in there specifically because of him. Like guys now are able to, you know, they're the, like league fits accounts looking at how guys dress mostly because of Allen Iverson. Like he was yeah. so influential off of the court and like the way that uh, rap music becomes affiliated with basketball in some way. It's like him and the Fab Five in the 90s are like yeah. the reason that that happens. And so he is this really interesting piece of basketball history that like if you remove Kobe yeah, basketball history changes and like we lose this like all-time great player or whatever. But I don't know that much about basketball itself changes. But mm-hmm. so much of the culture around basketball changed because of Allen Iverson and how the league and how the world reacted to him. And now, like he has said it a thousand times, I, I love Allen Iverson more for, you know, the way he embraces these younger generation of players and says like, you know, I took a, an ass kicking from people so that these guys could be who they are. And like, I'm so happy to see, you know, the way the league has changed. Like he loves Steph Curry's like, you know, yeah, I would never get to take 11 threes a game or whatever it is. And I'm so happy that these guys can do something that's uniquely them. That's different to them. And so I'd like, I love Iverson for that more than, you know, I grew up watching him play. He's like my hero as a kid. Mm-hmm. But the way that he's been an ambassador for the sport to me is just so cool to watch. In spite of the fact that like he was so miserable at the end of his career that I thought he'd be like a 
one of those back in my day, blah, blah, blah guys. And it's been the opposite. Well, a lot, I agree with, with everything you said there. I mean, I think we both agree Kobe was a better player, obviously, but I, I also think, I think this is about the hall of fame in a lot of ways too. I think sometimes we try to make the hall of fame. Like I'll use an NFL analogy, Matt Ryan or Phillip Rivers. They'll probably get in right because they compiled a bunch of stats. They were good. They were great players when they played, but you can tell the story of the league without bringing up Matt Ryan and Phillip Rivers, unless you want to tell the story of the most historic Super Bowl collapse ever. Then you have to include Matt Ryan. But I think when you talk about telling the story of a league and a hall of fame and a Mount Rushmore, you have to include more than just who was the best player. If you're doing the four best players. Yeah. Kobe is on that Mount Rushmore before Iverson is, but to your point, you can't tell the story of the NBA and how we got to where we are today without talking about Allen Iverson. And Kobe would come up for sure because he was on great teams, but he's mostly just a list of the champions. You know, there's not like a huge moment in the league that changes it. So I think that's that that's a fair take. Um, it is crazy to think about what Iverson went through, you know, when he played. I was too young at the time. And, you know, think about the fact that he was on a magazine that airbrushed all his tattoos off, you know, just yeah. like, what he went through, and I think what you say is is a hunt is is really true. That his him being who he is now. I remember like ten years ago, I read a book about him, and you know he's sitting alone in TGI Fridays, and he's had a lot of off the court issues. So I think just seeing him now and where he's at, and he's at at the Sixers games, maybe not as much as he used to be, but I feel like for a few years he was there all the time. It is cool to see him get through what he's been through to to where he is now. Yeah, I just think people think a lot harder about how they talk about athletes in part because of him and yeah. like how he was received by the general public and the media. There's again, this is I understand this is pot calling the kettle black, but like a largely white media covering mm-hmm. a, a guy who's like came from bad circumstances, like the, that 30 for 30 they did on his arrest and that yeah. fight in the bowling alley and everything he dealt with as a product of that was really eye-opening for me. Cause you know, I'm just not even cognizant of who he was when all that happened. And then, you know, mm-hmm. he's just a guy who plays for the Sixers. So it's like, Oh my God, this guy's awesome. But you don't know about all that he's gone through to get there. And so that was, we're really getting off on an. I was going to say, so overall, here. you think the 22 Sixers would smoke the 01 Sixers? I do. It's <laughs> um, where we fall on it. But um, here's what I would say. I still am not going to put them over the Jimmy Butler Sixers. Wow. All right. So you think that Jimmy Butler team would beat this team? I'm not saying they would beat them. I do think that that team had a defensive ceiling that is really hard to get to. Like, they came as close as anybody did that year to beating the champions, the Toronto yeah, Raptors, like went, true. went seven. And if not for a crazy Kawhi shot, you know, who knows what happens in overtime. I still think they lose that game personally because they're on the road and road game seven wins are really rare in the NBA. Especially in but even overtime. still, like they challenged that team. They took that team to the brink. And I thought that it's a team that had basically no depth. But that starting five was really, really good whenever they took the floor. And the deeper you get in the playoffs, the harder it becomes to even like play other guys. And so you just lean on that top five. I think if you were to give this current team the edge, it rests on two things. One, Joel is just straight up better than he was mm-hmm. at that point. Like is 
better than I, I would say there were a bunch of games during that run that Jimmy Butler was the best player on the floor. Joel would be the best guy it between those two teams, period. Like he is yeah. at a level that Jimmy has never he been is at. older now, but I agree he's better. Like his body's yeah. more broken down, but I think he's a better player. Yeah. So he's he's just at a level that he was not at before. And as a two-way guy is really hard to match in the league hierarchy. I do think that offensively, the other thing is that James Harden being the guy at the controls instead of Ben Simmons, where he's just kind of a waste of space. And right. they had to default to this Jimmy as point guard, which Jimmy was good enough at it to push that team to seven. But like, really, you want Jimmy in more of a, a traditional shooting guard role, right? Where he's more in attack mode and you'll get some secondary playmaking, but it's not Jimmy runs the offense every time down. And so being able to give it to Harden and say, you're going to run the offense and Tyrese is there as a secondary option and you have Melton and you have Tobias and you have a corner shooter and PJ, assuming that he has a pulse on a given night yeah, and, and a working hand. Yeah. And I, I just, I think this team is probably better now, but I want to see it in games that actually matter because this is, we are sort of prisoner of the moment right now where, They've played a lot of bad teams over the last mm-hmm. month and a half or so, and it's hard to say they're at a level that can get higher than that playoff ceiling that they hit. I think because they lost, people forget that that was a, a back-and-forth chess match. Like There are a couple games that can go either way. They won in Toronto in game two and flipped that series yeah. with a killer Jimmy game and like shut down a team with Kawhi and, you know, that was a deep and good Toronto team. And that team deserves a lot more respect than they probably get. Yeah. And, you know, to your point, you know, prisoner of the moment, I certainly am victim of, I'm certainly am that sometimes. And I think just what we've seen has been awesome, but your point is correct that we've seen other Sixers team battle tested the way we've not seen this team battle tested. And also let's be honest, when we've seen these players battle tested, Embiid, Harden, like they've played in a lot of playoff series. Their results have not been great, you know? So I think that seeing this team together in a full playoff series, and we're a few months away from that, and I'm taking your advice of not just thinking about that 24-7, but seeing them in there is obviously going to go a long way in shaping how we view them. The last question I had uh, for you on today's pod was, actually relates to this quite a bit, because the NBA trade trade deadline is less than a month away now. Um, they're not playing great teams, you're right, but they're playing really well. Daryl's going to have to make a decision. How does he view this team, right? Daryl has talked pretty openly about he'll look at the percentage of winning a title, and if you're at an X amount, you go all in, that type of thing. Um, what? Where do you think they're at? Because I think they're playing well enough where you could make an argument. Don't try to fix what isn't broken. Seems like they're finally clicking. All the pieces are, are kind of fitting into place. But there is still the Tobias contract and there is still, you know, potential options to upgrade the team. How big of a move do you think they're looking into making, I guess, number one, and just, are you hearing anything? I know it's far out, but hearing anything about what they would need, what they're looking for, that type of stuff. I I mean, I think they'd make as big a move as is possible for them to make. I just, I don't think there are any ones that are realistic beyond, you know, maybe Matisse and a contract like Furkan's contract for like a nine or $10 million player. Like I, I think that's something that they're probably going to explore the most just because it's the most realistic. Um, I do know that nobody on this team outside of 
Embiid and Harden is untouchable. Like they would move in the right deal. Absolutely. Anybody again, as we said before, there are levels to that. Tyrese is certainly closer to that group than he is like an expendable contract or someone you just Mm -hmm. throw in a trade. But I think that they are aware that Joel Embiid is in his MVP level prime. James is playing really well. Like if we're talking about James has lived up to his end of the bargain, right? Like if you bring him back as your second star next to Embiid, he's done everything you can ask him to do other than, you know, the foot injury and staying healthy, but right. that's out of his no, he's control, been, right? He's been awesome, 100%. So he has played about as well as he could possibly play as a, a number two next to Joel. And so you say, like, you look at that and say, we have to do whatever we can to put a, a contending team around this group. And, you know, I think it, if PJ starts playing better, you get closer to there. But, you know, if Matisse is going to be this, like, sometimes plays but he's only playing you know 10 to 15 minutes and sometimes his shot is so bad that you just can't play him i feel like that's the easiest guy to move where you say he's still got some upside he can cause a ton of chaos on defense you put him in a program where they have more i don't want to say developmental time because he's he's older yeah, at he's this in point, his fourth year or whatever in his right. mid-20s so it's not like he's some guy who's like fresh out of college or even a young guy out of college so I don't know how well that's going to sell, especially because he's in a contract year. But to me, that's the most obvious guy that you're going to move. If you're going to try to move him, you pair him with maybe a pick, another contract, whatever it is. And you see what turns up there. I I think they just need, if we are saying that it's going to be the James and Joel show and Tyrese and Tobias or sort of that three, four, they just need more two-way guys, more three and D, maybe somebody who can do some secondary creative stuff on the wing if possible. But those guys don't tend to be available. So you're going to have to take a, a gamble if you want a younger guy or just settle for somebody who's okay standing in the corner or standing on the wing, whatever it is, mm. launching threes and defending guys who are six seven, six eight, because everything else is going to be determined by exactly how good James and Joel are. Well, and I think that's kind of the core question because I think you're right that they're more than likely not going to make a big deal. A, because there's not a lot of big names out there. Things do change quickly in the NBA. I'm just wondering, and you kind of answered it, but would they be willing to do it? Like, like let's say for whatever reason, you know, the agents make it happen or, you know, Zach Levine or Bradley Beal, like Embiid seems to, he seems to be like the only star in the league that Embiid is like close enough to recruit, but Brad's a Drew Hanlon guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Always look at the trainers, man. That's the way to do it. So, but like Bradley Beal, there's no question if they added Bradley Beal to this team, that is a major change, a major addition. He's a, a very good player. He's fallen off a little. If you look at his stats, he's not kind of the scorer he was before, but that's a major change. If you're trade, if you're trading, uh, you know, Thibault and Ferk and whatever picks, you're mostly not changing the core of the team. It's still Embiid, Harden, Maxi, Melton, those guys. You add Beal into it, that's a major change. So when you say they're willing to make a change, and I know we're just kind of, you know, going back and forth here, but do you think they that they're willing because they feel they're not good enough or they're just like, give me all the stars we can and we'll figure it out? Well, that's, but that's Daryl's MO. Like, yeah. I mean, if Daryl could get another star and it's not exorbitantly expensive, I I think he's going to, if not make it, he's at least going to give it strong consideration. Because I do think, like, his driving belief is that stars are really the only thing that matters in the playoffs. Like, we can talk about 
this guy's an important role player. And, oh, what if they start him instead of bringing him off the bench or whatever it is? But, like, ultimately, playoff games, your best players are playing 38, 40 minutes a game, sometimes more than that, if that's what it takes to get it over the line. And, like, mm-hmm. they decide the game. It's not everybody else. It's whether those guys are better than the other team's best players. Like, basketball is a complicated sport in a lot of ways, but it's also very simplistic. Like, you have – one or two guys who are better than their one or two guys, more often than not, you're going to win. And if you can do that with a third guy, you get a third like game swinging player, somebody who, mm-hmm. you know, if we use the Milwaukee example, someone who could be like a Drew Holiday, that Drew is a great defender, shuts guys down. And every once in a while, he just has like a 35 point game and yeah. totally swings a game in their favor. Now, that doesn't happen often. You're not going to ask him to do it a lot but he is capable of doing it every so often in a big moment. And so I think if they could make that type of trade, they probably would do it just because that is, that's how the NBA works. And it also, if you get a second like big time guy and James decides he's leaving in the off season for whatever reason, you would at least have like two big time guys on the team that as you're bringing Maxi along and figuring other stuff out, but you know, I just I don't think there is a move that's out there. Like I I haven't heard the only team that really seems like they might explore some major moves is Toronto because they're really disappointing this year, and it sort of seems like they've run up against the ceiling of this. You know, every guy is six eight on the roster. <laughs> yeah, they don't yeah, have yeah, enough no, creation. Get ones, yeah. Yeah, they don't have enough creation. They don't have enough shooting, and so I I think they might be at the point where they say we have to do something and break this team up somehow. But I don't think any of the guys on that roster that they're going to move are guys that the Sixers are going to be able to obtain. Like Van Vliet does nothing for them. I think if OG Ananobi was really available and wasn't at an exorbitant cost, I think that's a guy that would be pretty killer on this team. Like if you had him in the starting lineup and not PJ, for example, it'd be awesome. But because of the contract he's on, I think it's like borderline impossible to acquire him. him. And the, well, here's the other thing. I think Toronto has leaked that they're looking for like a DeJounte Murray type package. So like several first round picks. And like, I don't think he's that good. I think he's Mm -hmm. a really good player, but no thank you, essentially. So I just, I don't think there's anything out there that I'm aware of beyond like, you know, maybe you look to try to trade for like a Jay Crowder type guy. Right. Well, and to, to what you said, and this goes back to the Zach Levine debate we had. And then, you know, of course he goes out and drops 40, whatever points he did. <laughs> but so who knows, you know, maybe we shouldn't name any names on the, uh, on they played next to Thunder. You know, let's not get into the, the shape. Well, Shay might go. Completely yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I'll be watching that game for sure. But I, I do think to your point about just having a third star, I think there's a legitimate argument of, don't mess it up. It's working, whatever. But I do think this team also needs to be honest and say, you need to protect yourself against Embiid or Harden disappearing in the playoffs, whether that's because of injury or whether that's because of poor play. Harden was not good in the playoffs last year. Embiid was injured. So I think while it's risky, especially at the trade deadline, because then you're only however many games away from the playoffs, you have to kind of figure it out. But ultimately, I would take that risk because like while Toby fits in perfectly, and I think you made good points when we were talking about Levine, how he just fits in and it works. 
Toby is not doing a 40 point game in the playoffs. Like Maxi, for as good as he is, can take over for stretches. And if they're close in the fourth, maybe he can do something where he gets 10 points in a short span and that's what they need. But he's not somebody where if Harden's not playing or if Joel is playing with a face mask again, it isn't himself, you can continually go to him on offense. So that that's the risk I would be willing to take. But to your point, you know, I think Beal is probably the the kind of guy that could pop out of nowhere, maybe. But outside of that, you don't even see names that could potentially kind of become available. If you didn't like my Levine takes, you'll like my Beal takes even less. <laughs> I, I think he's just kind of a loser. Like he might be, he, he might be a loser. He might be. I mean, you sign a, a mega deal for a team that has gone nowhere and is going nowhere, and just kind of he just gets to hide out there. Like he collects his money. Yeah, he puts up like decent counting stats, but like nobody cares what they do there. Like I, now, it's hard for me to tell somebody don't sign a deal for two hundred and forty million. Oh, listen, <laughs> I, it's one of the greatest. You know, great job by him. He yeah. got the Wizards to pay him. Honestly, his contract is shocking. If you actually look at it, I'm gonna pull it up real quick before we go. Well, and he's gonna make that, like yeah. sixty million dollars at the end of his contract, which it's unbelievable. is absolutely absurd here. I'm pulling five years, $251 million. He has a player option for $57 million in 2026. Something tells Bradley Beal, for a guy option. who's yeah. never won anything. Right, guy, right. Like consistently is on like the 10th best team in the Eastern Conference. So you wouldn't trade Toby for him is the vibe I'm getting. I mean, I might consider it, but I do think that is legitimately one of the worst contracts. Yeah, no, it's like a John Wall level contract, especially because his numbers have gotten worse. I think he's only averaging 22 points this year. His threes aren't that great. So yeah, no, I mean, I agree that there that doesn't seem to be anybody popping up. That deal is terrible. I think in a weird way, Toby might have more value just because at least he's expiring soon. So if you're the Wizards, you can say, okay, we get out of this horrendous contract and we're, you know, we have that cap free after next season. So who knows? But yeah, I mean, we're less than a month away, which is wild. And the good news for the Sixers is at least they're playing good basketball and going into the deadline, there will be some pressure on Maury to, to reinvest in the team because they're playing so well. Yeah. Well, we're going to see. I, yeah. I'm hoping for some trade rumors because uh, as sad as it is, that's always like click central on the... Uh... I love a good trade rumor. Trust me. I love a hypothetical. <laughs> if there was anything possible, we'd be leading the pod with it. But there's just literally... Nothing. So here we are talking about the 016ers and the New Balance Tyrese Maxi shoes. So, right. all right, we are going to get out of here. Um, I believe we're going to record next, probably on Saturday. It seems like we're kind of working into that Saturday morning kind of schedule. But who knows? Maybe something will happen. Maybe there'll be a trade. Maybe there'll be an emergency pod. But if not, we'll probably talk to you guys on Saturday. Kyle, any final thoughts before we wrap this uh, bad boy up? No, just a reminder to everyone to download the Odyssey app. Oh, look at that. that. Uh, the auto download and sub subscribe to the pod there. Nice. So you get all our pods at the same time. Nice. Like Elliot's slacking on his hosting duties. So make <laughs> sure that one of us is uh, asking for five-star reviews and all that. Well, kind of stuff. The, that's excellent job by you. The funny thing is I check, I kid you not probably four times a day, the reviews for the pod just to see if anyone's leaving something. And then I always think, well, Elliot, you very rarely remind them to do it. I've fallen off. So Good job by you, Kyle. If you're still listening out there, leave a five-star review, ask a question. Come on, give us something to talk about. We, uh, I think we deserve a five-star, at least a four-star. I think five, but at least a, uh, some, a question in your review would be awesome. But all right, wrapping this up, Kyle already told you the Odyssey, download it. He already took care of that. But um, 
It was a good time, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. All right, see you soon, Alex.